0: War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy, Translated by Aylmer and Louise Maud. Book 14. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For all information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ernst Patinama. War and Peace. Book 14. Chapter 1. The Battle of Borodino, with the occupation of Moscow that followed it, and the flight of the French without further conflicts, is one of the most instructive phenomena in history. All historians agree that the external activity of states and nations in their conflicts with one another is expressed in wars, and that as a direct result of greater or less success in war, the political strength of states and nations increases or decreases. Strange as may be the historical account of how some king or emperor, having quarrelled with another, collects an army, fights his enemy's army, gains a victory by killing three, five, or ten thousand men, and subjugates a kingdom and an entire nation of several millions, all the facts of history, as far as we know it, confirm the truth of the statement that the greater or lesser success of one army against another is the cause, or at least an essential indication, of an increase or decrease in the strength of the nation, even though it is unintelligible why the defeat of an army, a hundredth part of a nation, should oblige that whole nation to submit. An army gains a victory and, at once, The rights of the conquering nation have increased to the detriment of the defeated. An army has suffered defeat, and at once a people loses its rights in proportion to the severity of the reverse, and if its army suffers a complete defeat, the nation is quite subjugated. So, according to history, it has been found from the most ancient times, and so it is to our own day. All Napoleon's wars serve to confirm this rule. In proportion to the defeat of the Austrian army, Austria loses its rights, and the rights and the strength of France increase. The victories of the French at Jena and Auerstadt destroy the independent existence of Prussia. But then, in 1812, the French gain a victory near Moscow. Moscow is taken, and after that, with no further battles, it is not Russia that ceases to exist, but the French army of six hundred thousand, and then Napoleonic France itself. To strain the facts to fit the rules of history, to say that the field of battle at Borodino remained in the hands of the Russians, or that after Moscow there were other battles that destroyed Napoleon's army, is impossible after the french victory at borodino there was no general engagement nor any that were at all serious yet the french army ceased to exist what does this mean if it were an example taken from the history of china we might say that it was not an historic phenomenon which is the historian's usual expedient when anything does not fit the standards if the matter concerns some brief conflict in which only a small number of troops took part, we might treat it as an exception. But this event occurred before our fathers' eyes, and for them it was a question of the life or death of their fatherland, and it happened in the greatest of all known wars. The period of the campaign of 1812, from the Battle of Borodino to the expulsion of the French, proved that the winning of a battle does not produce a conquest, and is not even an invariable indication of conquest. It proved that the force which decides the fate of peoples lies not in the conquerors, nor even in armies and battles, but in something else. The French historians, describing the condition of the French army before it left Moscow, affirm that all was in order in the Grand Army, except the cavalry, the artillery, and the transport, there was no forage for the horses or the cattle. That was a misfortune no one could remedy, for the peasants of the district burned their hay rather than let the French have it. The victory gained did not bring the usual results, because the peasants, Karb and Vlas, who, after the French had evacuated Moscow, drove in their carts to pillage the town, and in general personally failed to manifest any heroic feelings, and the whole innumerable multitude of such peasants did not bring their hay to Moscow, for the high price offered them, but burned it instead. Let us imagine two men who have come out to fight a duel with rapiers according to all the rules of the art of fencing. The fencing has gone on for some time. Suddenly, one of the combatants, feeling himself wounded and understanding that a matter is no joke but concerns his life, throws down his rapier, and, seizing the first cudgel that comes to hand, begins to brandish it. Then let us imagine that the combatant, who so sensibly employed the best and simplest means to attain his end, was at the same time influenced by traditions of chivalry, and, desiring to conceal the facts of the case, insisted that he had gained his victory with the rapier according to all the rules of art, One can imagine what confusion and obscurity would result from such an account of the duel. The fencer who demanded a contest according to the rules of fencing was the French army. His opponent, who threw away the rapier and snatched up the cudgel, was the Russian people. Those who try to explain the matter according to the rules of fencing are the historians who have described the event. After the burning of Smolensk, a war began which did not follow any previous traditions of war. The burning of towns and villages, the retreats after battles, the blow dealt at Borodino, and the renewed retreat, the burning of Moscow, the capture of marauders, the seizure of transports, and the guerrilla war were all departures from the rules. Napoleon felt this. And from the time he took up the correct fencing attitude in Moscow, and instead of his opponent's rapier saw a cudgel raised above his head, he did not cease to complain to Kutuzov and to the Emperor Alexander that the war was being carried on contrary to all the rules, as if there were any rules for killing people. In spite of the complaints of the French as to the non-observance of the rules, in spite of the fact that to some highly placed russians it seemed rather disgraceful to fight with the cudgel and they wanted to assume a pose en carte or en tierce according to all the rules and to make an adroit thrust en prime and so on the cudgel of the people's war was lifted with all its menacing and majestic strength and without consulting anyone's tastes or rules and regardless of anything else it rose and fell with stupid simplicity, but consistently, and belaboured the French till the whole invasion had perished. And it is well for a people who do not, as the French did in 1813, salute, according to all the rules of art, and, presenting the hilt of the rapier gracefully and politely, hand it to their magnanimous conqueror, but at the moment of trial, without asking what rules others have adopted in similar cases, simply and easily pick up the first cudgel that comes to hand and strike with it, till the feeling of resentment and revenge in their soul yields to a feeling of contempt and compassion. End of chapter 1 Recording by Ernst Patinammer